You're listening to Ascendant Health and Politics, a show about the day's emerging public health issues and the intersection of politics. Your hosts are Kyle McGowan and Amanda Campbell. Today, we'll be talking about the recent news on the COVID-19 vaccines and breaking down what it means for these vaccines to have achieved over 90% efficacy. Well, good morning. I mean, 90% efficacy is uh, wonderful. Sounds great. I mean, that's a um, some good news in months and months of really, really bad news. I mean, as of yesterday, the United States sat at 114 million cases, 248,000 deaths. I mean, yesterday alone, we had 159,000 new cases with 1,500 deaths and 76,000 hospitalizations. I mean, this is just completely unsustainable. Um, I remember in March and April and May of being uh, worried and um, concerned that we were on this trajectory of with 40,000 new cases a day. And here we're talking about 159,000 new cases a day. So this this sounds like great news. Yeah. Yeah, those numbers you just mentioned, Kyle, are pretty staggering and certainly not where we expected to be when this started early last early earlier this year. Um, but we are getting a lot of good news after a year of a lot of bad news. And last Monday was really when we got the first ray of sunshine, if you will, and, and hope that we are beginning to see the end of, of what might of this pandemic, at least here in the States and hopefully globally as well. When Pfizer and BioNTech announced their COVID-19 vaccine was over 90% effective in the initial results of their phase three clinical trials. That was followed up this Monday by Moderna announcing that their vaccine was 94.5% effective. And today, I guess Pfizer and BioNTech couldn't help themselves but update the results of their COVID-19 vaccine, which has showed 95% effectiveness um, or efficacy, excuse me. And that's pretty incredible. And it's important to understand why this is such good news. First, when this pandemic started, we as a federal government initially invested millions and billions of dollars in contributing to the study and development and creation of vaccines. But there was no guarantee that any of those vaccines were actually going to work out. So this is incredible that we actually have not one, but two vaccines that have already demonstrated their effectiveness in the clinical trials. And there are some important differences between these vaccines that we can talk a little bit about. Mostly right now, the differences are related to the storage requirements, which is going to impact, I believe, how they're distributed and um, obviously maintained by states as they're giving vaccines out. Uh, but the other important thing is to remember that vaccines aren't always this effective. Right. And in fact, the FDA set their requirements for a vaccine candidate to demonstrate at least 50% effectiveness. So the fact that we're at over 90% for two vaccines at this point in time is pretty remarkable. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Redfield and others have said, you know, early on that their hope was that this would be north of 60 and here we are talking about 95%. That That's really better than anyone expected. So, so what does vaccine effectiveness really mean? 
So that's a really good question and, the, and and one that is worth distinguishing. I never paid much attention to vaccine effectiveness before coming to CDC, actually. You know, my grandfather was my pediatrician growing up, and so getting vaccinations was really a never a question. We were going to all be vaccinated. And by all, I mean myself, my siblings, and all of my cousins who also had the pleasure of going to see my grandfather, who was quite terrifying as a young child. <laughs> we all had to be bribed in order to get our vaccine shots each So you are not anti-vaxxers? Not anti-vaxxers, but maybe anti-going to the pediatrician. <laughs> yes. that, that may be a topic for a, a future podcast of uh, that's right. Um, but I, I love my grandfather. He was just a, a big man and scary when you're small and, and are going to have to get shots every time you go see him. Not not a pleasant memory. You'd rather go get ice cream with your grand, grandfather than get a shot. But anyways, getting older, I I knew I should get a flu vaccine every year. But to be completely honest, you know, shots are never my favorite thing. And so I really didn't appreciate them or start getting them regularly until I had a child. Um, but now that, you know, especially after my time at CDC and understanding how important vaccines are, not just, you know, the vaccines that children get uh, through the vaccine schedule, but also um, our annual flu vaccines, you know, I, I really have come to not only appreciate, but, um, you know, also <laughs> personally uh, make sure that not, I'm not only getting my vaccines, but encouraging my family to do so as well. But one of the things that's important to distinguish is, is the difference between vaccine efficacy and vaccine effectiveness when we're talking about these COVID-19 vaccines. Because so far, the all the studies that and the, the evidence that we have related to these vaccines has come from randomized controlled trials. So it has come under optimal conditions where we've been able to test a relatively healthy, you know, population of participants and, um, you know, had no challenges with vaccine storage or distribution or getting individuals to take their two-dose vaccine on time. All of those things are happening under perfect conditions. And that is where we're able to show and demonstrate vaccine efficacy and how much vaccine protection is able to be measured under those conditions. Whereas vaccine effectiveness is referring to the protection that's measured in an observational study where it's occurring within a real world condition. So for example, CDC measures the effectiveness, the vaccine effectiveness of the flu vaccine every year, uh, which is happening just within um, real world conditions. And they do it across the country and they're able to basically take, you know, a random population sample and determine how effective the flu vaccine is on a year by year basis. So we can think of this in two ways. Vaccine efficacy is referring to vaccine protection under perfect conditions, whereas vaccine effectiveness is the protection under real-world conditions. <clears throat> so while vaccine effectiveness can vary, recent studies show that flu vaccination is reducing the risk of flu illness by about 40 to 60 percent year over year. So that helps to put into context why the FDA set their requirement for COVID vaccine effectiveness to be around 50% because that's pretty standard with the normal year year to year flu vaccine. 
But you can compare that to, for example, the MMR vaccine or the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine that children get, uh, which is about 90% effective at preventing measles if they get both doses. So in other words, again, these early results from the vaccines have been truly remarkable and put them well ahead of the annual flu vaccine. Um, and this is a good reminder to um, encourage everyone to go and get their flu vaccine because we are in flu season. So yes. please don't forget to do that. Yeah, I'm the, the world's biggest baby when it comes to needles as well. And I get mine every single year and cry like a little baby, but I still get mine. Um, but so what you're getting to here and what the point you're trying to make is that um, this vaccine potentially is on the higher end of the scale. So we every year have um, the flu and we have a new vaccine every year because the flu mutates and we have a new strain of flu. And so every year we have to design this uh, new vaccine to compete with this new year's strain of, of flu. That's right. And that tends to be hopefully in the north of 60 range, but in reality, it's usually less. Um, what we're talking about here is is up there with measles and rubella where, I, I, you know, up until 2019 when we had a outbreak of measles, I mean, you don't see a lot of cases of measles and rubella and mumps anymore because we have vaccines that are so effective. That's right. Well, this is wonderful news. I mean, how long do we uh, think that this vaccine will provide protection for, for COVID? So that's a question we still don't have an answer to at this point in time. And that's going to be really important for there to be continued studies and analysis and monitoring of this populations that's already gotten the vaccine that have been you know part of these phase three clinical trials and then moving forward as well so that we understand exactly how long the protection lasts. Because at this point, we don't know. Is it going to last three months, six months, a year? Will it require a booster? Is it going? Is the COVID-19 strain going to mutate like the flu does? And we're going to need an updated vaccine? These are all unknowns at the moment. So we'll have to watch closely in the coming weeks and months and years ahead to determine um, exactly the answer to that question. Right. Right. Well, I, so my next question for you is, you know, so my son has a um, egg allergy, which complicates things every year when it comes to the flu vaccine because of the way they produce um, the, the flu vaccine every year. And so we have to, you know, search around and uh, find the recombinant vaccine that doesn't use uh, egg-based proteins um, just because we don't want him to have an allergic reaction when he has, you know, gets the regular shot. It's nothing life threatening. He just swells up, gets, gets hives, Benadryl makes it go away. But what are we talking about as far as side effects for the vaccine? So that's actually another area of really good news so far from the vaccine studies that have happened so far for Pfizer's vaccine that they've made with BioNTech. At this point, the most common and severe side effects that they've reported are fatigue and headache, but that's within less than 4% of the population. Well, that I have not. that every day if I don't have my coffee. <laughs> that's right. I'm not sure how many could actually pinpoint to uh, their vaccine that they got as the actual source of their fatigue, but I, I won't I won't deny right. that those results are accurate. Um, and then for Moderna, they have a number of, of other similar um, side effects that they have reported so far within their um, phase three clinical trial study population. 
fatigue, um, muscle soreness, headache, those types of things, and, and redness at the injection site. Again, that's happening within a, a very small percentage of the um, population that, that took the vaccine. And so I think that is all, I think those are all side effects that we can live with. Yeah. Um, obviously, if, if there were, you know, other issues related to your heart condition or, or even, you know, um, beyond that death, I think those would obviously be cause for concern. But uh, because we're not seeing that, I think at this point we can say that the vaccine is relatively safe, which is great news and I think can really help to bolster the confidence of Americans and those worldwide who are going to be looking to take the vaccine within the next year. That's great. That's really great. Well, you've explained some of the, the, the side effects and the different side effects to the, the two vaccines. So what what's the actual differences in the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine? So both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are a two-dose vaccine, which isn't ideal. We'd really prefer to have a one-dose vaccine because obviously that's a lot easier to ensure that the uptake is 100% on the part of those who are actually getting vaccinated. I think it's going to be a lot harder to ensure that folks get that two dose or get that second dose in particular. But the real important distinguisher, I think, right now between the two vaccines is how they have to be stored. So the Pfizer vaccine requires cold chain storage and transport which is a little bit complicated. So what is that? What, is, what does that mean? <laughs> exactly. It means that this vaccine has to be stored at temperatures of about minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit and delivered in dry ice-packed boxes um, across the country. This is a challenge, though, because that means not only the transportation of the vaccines, but then the storage, and they can only be stored up for a certain number of days. You can only open the container a certain number of times, so on and so forth. They can't be refrozen. This makes it a challenge. We've got some logistics challenges. You've nailed it. Exactly. And especially in, you know, rural parts of this country, they are going to there's just going to be, a, it's going to be difficult. We've got a hurdle to get over here. But this is where the news about Moderna is a really positive one because it does not require that cold chain storage. And so I think, you know, again, having that diversity uh, and those options is going to be really helpful um, to make sure that we have vaccine where we need it and can ensure that all, all Americans have access to it. Right. So, I mean, this is, it's good news that both of the the vaccines are similar in their not having major side effects. Uh, the effectiveness is on, on par. Efficacy. And efficacy. Thank you. Thank you. You're <laughs> correct. Uh, are, are, are on par. And so it's great to, to, you know, I think in a perfect world, you would want to not have a vaccine that had to be stored at, you know, negative 100 degrees. But with having the two of them working together in tandem, I think is is it's ideal because we're able to get the the vaccine out in areas in metro areas that have the the cold chain storage already available, and using the other vaccine in in areas that may not. So, what are the next steps? What what are we you know over the next you know days, weeks, months? What are the next steps? Uh, good question. So, in the next couple of days. Both Pfizer and Moderna intend to submit 
an emergency use authorization or EUA with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And that, as soon as they have that EUA in hand, they can start to distribute it, distribute the vaccine. And <clears throat> manufacturing is actually um, already underway. Pfizer expects that it's going to be able to produce globally up to 50 million vaccine doses in 2020 in the next 30 days, 40 right. days, uh, just to point that out, and up to 1.3 billion doses by the end of 2021. And Moderna is saying that they're on track to manufacture between 500 million and a billion doses globally by 2021. So um, I believe that was 60 Minutes that did a, an interview with General Perna recently who said that as soon as they have this EUA in hand, he expects for vaccines to begin distributing immediately. Where those vaccines are going to go, I think is the next step in determining and, and the next question that folks are going to have, right? Right. And so, um, you know, that's where now the CDC is so important because they have um, this vaccine, this recommend, this body called um, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices that makes recommendations for the United States to determine who gets vaccines and um, <clears throat> what the priority should look like, especially in this situation where we are going to have limited vaccine, especially in the early days. Great. So what am I missing? What questions am I not asking? So um, there are, are a couple of things. One thing that um, I should have mentioned before was that, you know, one, we're going to be looking to figure out whether or not these vaccines are able to protect people entirely from getting COVID, or if they do get COVID, is it a mild form of it? Are they asymptomatic? Are they still able to transmit it? Those are all still important questions that are going to um, be important for us to understand how um, to curb COVID-19 ultimately. So this is the, the, the question that the two of us and others in public health get every year from people. I got my flu shot this year and it gave me the flu, which is just not true. The flu vaccine will not give you the flu. Now you may get the flu shot and have similar reactions because your body is producing antibodies to hopefully protect you. And so when we're talking about, um, so, I mean, the point is that you can still get the flu vaccine and get the flu. You can still get the flu vaccine um, and have symptoms. But the big point we're trying to make here is that it, it may have prevented you from being hospitalized. It may have prevented you from uh, death. These are things that are sometimes hard to prove, but we know for a fact that getting the vaccine, whether you get symptoms or you end up ultimately with the flu, having that extra layer of protection of the vaccine helps prevent outcomes that could be worse. And that's what we're talking about here, correct? Exactly. Yeah. And and so I think it's, again, a really positive point that we have to say that these vaccines so far have demonstrated that, you know, above 90% efficacy, meaning that at this point it doesn't look like you're going to be, you're going to be getting COVID-19 if you have the vaccine, but there's still that percentage 
out there that is likely to still get it. And, and it, you know, even of the, a flu vaccine that is 40 to 60% effective on an annual basis is actually pretty good at preventing severe symptoms attributed to flu and to your point, death, which is obviously what we're all concerned about and what we want to, why we want to encourage people to get the vaccine. Right. So a couple of the other challenges that I, I see coming up in the next few months is actually related to just this point, which is vaccine hesitancy and whether or not people are going to feel confident in, in, in the science that's already been put out and will continue to be um, updated as we know more and whether or not they're going to trust and actually take the vaccine. I think there's going to be a lot of misinformation out there, just like there is on an annual basis with the flu vaccine and um, others that are sort of in that lane of anti-vaxxers. But there's also, I think, you know, going to be clearly a transition and messaging from the federal government as the new administration comes in and we have this transition of leadership. Um, And then the other challenge that I see is going to be vaccine distribution. Um, we already talked about Pfizer and the issues with cold chain storage and distribution and the, just those logistics, but that's just one piece of the puzzle. And Pfizer has already stated that they've got the, the ability to maintain and, and, you know, coordinate all those logistics, but, um, you know, time will tell. Right. And the other thing that, you know, I think we, we talked to about the rural issues and it's not only, you know, the cold stain, cold chain storage, but it's also getting um, just the right number of vaccine to people in rural areas and then making sure that they're not only taking that one dose, but both doses uh, within the correct time frame. So we've got some challenges um, concerned about, too, do we have the infrastructure to manage this distribution? Um and, you know, whether or not it's it, how, how, how do all of the pieces fit together between the state and the federal government? Right. So I think we can do a whole nother episode, though, talking more about those issues because there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and there will certainly be um, lots of new information coming out in the days and weeks ahead, um, not only from the states, but also from the federal government, from the current administration, but also the transition team as well as they're thinking through how are they going to pick up where this administration's left off. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's, I guess the bottom line here is we have two potentially great vaccines that can put us on the road to being normal sometime or getting back to normal sometime in 2021. But if, if people are hesitant and people do not have, um, are concerned about the vaccine and don't take it, you know, having these two great vaccines, they're worthless if people don't get them. Exactly. And so we, we as a country, I think, have to do a better job of not dismissing people's concerns with the vaccine, but making sure that the doctors and the scientists who know best are actually able to be in a position where they can explain the vaccines and how they work and and put people at ease so that they're willing to go get this vaccine for their grandmother who's in a nursing home or themselves or their children. Because to be honest, this is the best tool that we have in our toolbox moving forward to get back to normal. That's exactly right, Kyle. Couldn't have said it better. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. And as always, remember to stay classy, stay healthy, America.